Good morning, everyone. We are in Parsha Shlach Lecha. Uh, it's a very troubling Parsha. It's a troubling Parsha because it describes one of the most tragic stories of the whole Torah. It's, in fact, the entire Parsha, just this story. Many of the stories in the Torah are just one chapter, but this is an entire Parsha, a whole Sedra. just talks about this tragic incident that took place. Everything had gone so well. Even the things that had gone wrong had gone well, right? They were in Egypt, they were slaves, they were redeemed from slavery. There was redemption, there was exodus. They got to the foot of Mount Sinai, and despite difficulties and complaints and things weren't quite right, nevertheless, they received the Torah. It was one of the most glorious moments in human history. God revealed himself to an entire nation. They received the Torah, and then things were difficult. Remember, there was difficulties with food. There was difficulties with other issues that erupted. But, and of course, the story of the Egel, the terrible story of the golden calf. But then again, it was neutralized. God forgave them. And now was the great moment they'd been waiting for, not for a year or two, or even for the duration of their time in Egypt. They had been waiting for this moment for many, many generations, from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the time that Avraham Avinu, the Brisbane Absarim, was informed by God, this is going to be your land, and your descendants, they will resemble the stars of the sky, and they will take possession of Eretz Canaan, this place that I sent you to from Ulkastim, and you've come here, this will be your place, this will be your residence, this will be your heritage, this is your legacy. And he passed that over to Isaac, who heard the same thing, who passed it to Jacob, who heard the same thing, and ultimately it passed from one generation to the next, and it was reconfirmed to Moshe Rabbeinu in anticipation of the exodus from Egypt. The Jewish nation the Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were going to inherit the Promised Land. And they come out of Egypt with great miracles, with pomp, with ceremony. They experience the spiritual moment, this incredible moment, when the Torah was given to them at Mount Sinai, and then that moment had come. The moment when they would take possession through conquest of the land of Canaan and turn it into Eretz Yisrael. They would turn it into the land of their heritage that had been, prom had been promised to them so many generations earlier. Okay, I painted the picture. You got it? Okay. Now, what happened? What happened was that the nation and Moshe asked God whether or not a group of scouts Miraglim, usually translated as spies, scouts, it's probably a better translation. People to scout out the promised land. After all, we don't want to rely on miracles, we want to know where we're heading. We know that God is going to help us, but we want to make sure that the place that we are going, that we know exactly which way we're going to enter, how big it is, how many people there are, that we can anticipate all the hurdles and challenges along the way. And that's what happened? Twelve fine people, 
Anoshim, they're called in the Torah, fine, upstanding leaders of the Jewish nation, one from each tribe, went to Eretz Canaan and they scouted out the land. And they came back and instead of giving words of encouragement to the Jewish nation, they delivered words of despair. And rather than the Jewish nation anticipating what was surely the greatest moment in our history after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, rather than receiving this, this news of the conquest with open arms and saying, whatever it is, we're ready, ready, steady, go, let's take over the land, they panicked. They fell apart. Everything went wrong. Nothing was positive. The optimism that had driven them all this time turned into the most negative form of pessimism you can imagine. And they cried out to Moshe Rabbeinu said, Why have you done this to us? We don't want to go to the Promised Land. We want to stay where we are, perhaps go back to Egypt, whatever it was. And the punishment for the Jewish nation was devastating. Instead of being forgiven once they'd done teshuva, they were told, you won't go to the Promised Land. Well, you're not going back to Egypt, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to take you back into slavery, but you're not going to the Promised Land. In fact, the punishment was that that entire Exodus generation had to die before any Jew came into the Promised Land. By the way, that included Moshe, and Aaron and Miriam, the leaders of the Jewish nation. Even they had to die. Of course, we know there was a particular story with Moshe Rabbeinu as to why he was refused entry. But ultimately, the only person, the only significant person who made it from that generation into the land of Israel, into the land of Canaan, was none other than one of the spies, one of those 12 spies, Yehoshua bin Nun, the primary disciple, student of Moshe Rabbeinu, his right-hand man, his sidekick, his mashbak. Yehoshua bin Nun, who had broken away from the spies and not agreed with their approach when they returned of reporting and recording all the terrible things that the Jewish nation could expect to encounter when they got there. Yehoshua bin Nun took over the mantle of leadership from Moshe Rabbeinu and he was the one who led the Jewish people into the Promised Land. I'm now going to delve into a Nesibus Sholem which tries to unravel, as do so many commentaries, and I've given Shi'urim about this very same topic in years, in years past, and uh, you can find them on my website. You're welcome to listen to them. Different perspectives as to why it is that the Jewish nation and the spies fell into the trap of this negativity and pessimism and the net result was that they couldn't make it into the promised land despite every attempt by them to mitigate, to apologize, to do teshuva none of them ever made it into the promised land. What went so spectacularly wrong? That's the focus of this year and I'm going to do it through, I'm going to discuss it through the medium, via the medium 
of the Nesivas Shalom, the Slonim Rebbe. Let's have a look at what the Slonim Rebbe says. By the way, you can download this piece. I've, I've PDF'd it and it's available on the website. I'm not sure if uh, Carly's able to send it now into messages. If she can, please do that, Carly. It will also be on the YouTube, um, so you'll find it there. It'll be on my website on SoundCloud. So if you want to download the actual words, I'm not sure I'll get through the whole piece of Nesiva Sholem. We'll get through as much of it as we can in an hour. But uh, I, I would think that you'll find it fascinating. And of course, the Slonim Rebbe, the Nesiva Sholem, is an e- extremely attractive parish, um, very contemporary parish on the Chumish, on the Parshish in the Torah, because it's written in such an easy style and the concepts are so beautifully explained and so relevant to us. They're so human. And that's why the Nesiva Sholem has become, of late, in the last 10-15 years, one of the most popular perushim on the Torah. And of course, anyone who listens to my shir on the parsha regularly will know that I am a big fan and I quote and use the Nesiva Sholem very regularly. Let's, let's look at what the Nesiva Sholem has to say. In the parsha about the Maraglim, Yeshin Yonim Temuim Atrichim Biur, there are many puzzling matters that require explanation. Reishis, firstly, This is the first time in the record of the history of the Jewish nation to that point that the entire Jewish nation, besides for two people, Yeshua and Kolev, who was also, who'd also joined with Yeshua in rejecting the bad report of the spies, besides for them, every single member of the Jewish nation was included in this hate, in this sin of believing the Miraglim or being involved in being so negative about the conquest of Eretz Israel. By the way, when it came to the Egel, we know for sure that it wasn't the entire nation. They may have stood by and not done anything, but they weren't directly involved in the Chet. It was only 3,000 people who were directly involved in the Chet HaEgel, in the sin of the golden calf. But here, with the Miraglim, the entire nation was involved. How is that possible? What went wrong? How, how did they all fall for this? Continues the Nesiva Sholem, Surely there were among the Jewish nation. Nesiva Sholem sounds like Avram Avinu talking about Sodom. But we're not talking about Sodom. We're talking about the Jewish nation who'd received the Torah such a short time earlier. And yet, even though one can assume, must assume, that there were tzaddikim among them, righteous people, great people, holy people, spiritual people, connected people, devoted people, people of great faith. Nevertheless, they all fell for it. They were all included in this sin. And similarly, says the Nesiva Shalom, we need to understand. Why was the sin of going along with what the Miraglim reported so devastating and so terrible? that it was impossible to do teshuva for it. How is that even possible? After the sin of the golden calf, and they were uh, mourning, they were very, very sad. That's what the Pasuk says. And the 
Ramban Nachmanides explains, what does that mean? She'osu teshuva, the word vayisablu in the Torah, doesn't mean avelus, doesn't mean mourning literally. It means that they did teshuva. They went the whole hog. They really went to town doing teshuva. They really meant it. They were so, so despondent at the fact that they'd been caught up in the sin of the golden calf that the nation did teshuva. V'akodesh baruchu kibel tshuvasam. And God received their teshuva, he accepted it, and he forgave them. The Gamkan, and here as well, in the story of the Meraglim, the very same word is used. And despite that, nevertheless, the teshuva was not accepted, it didn't work. Unbelievable. The terrible decree that, that uh, God decreed that nobody would see, nobody would experience, nobody would embark on the conquest of the Holy Land if they were involved in the sin of the Miraglim. That decree stood in place and it was never rescinded. Even more puzzling than that, says the Nesiva Sholem, that it's in connection with the Miraglim that it says, Vayoyma Hashem, and God said, Solachti kidvorecha. I have forgiven them as you have said. In other words, he listened to Moshe Rabbeinu's please, P-L-E-A-S, on behalf of the Jewish nation. He listened carefully, and Vayoyma Hashem, Solachti kidvorecha. He said, you're right, and I forgive them. It's apparently, as the Nesiva Shalom says, he wrote elsewhere, this seems to contradict that which it says close by. God repeated the decree even after he said, He said, I swear that they will never see the land. How exactly does Salachti Kidvarecha work? How were they forgiven? This phrase, Salachti Kidvarecha, appears to mean that they are forgiven, that their teshuva has worked. And yet, Umahu Pirish Salachti, what is the explanation for the word Salachti if the punishment stays in place? So the explanation that Nesiva Shalom gives elsewhere is that initially God said, I, I don't want to have anything more to do with the Jewish nation. I completely discard them in terms of them being the chosen people. As if God would abandon the Jewish people to their fate and have nothing more to do with them not be connected to them anymore. That was the original punishment for the sin of the Meraglim. God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Ah, what do you need them for? I will turn you, Moses, into the new nation of God, and I will discard them, and I will have nothing to do with them. I will smite them. They will disappear from the face of the planet. And it was about this that Moshe Rabbeinu Moses prayed to God and said, please don't do that. Don't abandon them. Don't cast them aside. 
And it was that that God answered when he said, You're right, Salachti, I forgive them as you have pleaded with me, uh, as you have pleaded with me. I uh, accede to your request and I accept the uh, teshuva of the Jewish nation. It's about this that I accept your request. That I won't discard them from uh, my face, as it were. They won't be discarded as my personal nation, as my friends on planet Earth. That was the request of Moshe Rabbeinu, and it was that to that that God said, However, but the actual decree of their being banned from entering the Holy Land, that stood in place. So what type of salachti kidvarecha? Okay, they didn't experience annihilation, but they weren't entirely forgiven. What evidence do we have anywhere else that somebody does teshuvah gemura? He's completely and utterly forgiven salachti kidvarecha. And yet, the punishment stays in place. How does that make any sense? V'tzorech bia, biur. And it needs to be explained. Madua loyha ilot Why didn't their teshuva work? Umagam shekol klal Yisrael ne'enash ba'inash zeh. And in addition to that, we need to understand why the entire nation was punished with this punishment. Maybe some of them, their teshuva wasn't acceptable. But the entire nation, not one person managed to achieve full repentance as a result of the teshuva, as a result of the vayis ablu. How does that make any sense? And now we come to the biggest question of all. This is the one over which so many commentaries are puzzled over every generation of Jewish commentary on the Torah and the Bible. What happened with these Meraglim? How is it possible that these princes of the Jewish nation became traitors to God? These were extremely righteous people. As the Torah says about them, what's the word that the Torah used? I mentioned it before. These were upstanding, fine, special people. The Meraglim weren't there simply because they bought that place or they gerrymandered an election or somehow they were being honoured, but their reach was well beyond their grasp. No! These were great people, Kulam Anoshim, Roshe B'nai Yisrael, Hema. They were heads of the Jewish people. How is it possible that the Meraglim failed? It's the only time they're ever mentioned in the Torah. How is it that they failed so dramatically, so drastically? from that which was expected of them, and could be expected of them as Anoshim. What does it mean when it says uh, um, that It means that they were the greatest people in the entire nation of the Jewish people. How is it possible that they had this terrible fall 
from the highest possible place into the lowest pit imaginable. What happened? What went so wrong? To the extent that they dabbled in the worst possible heresy against God himself. God wants the Jewish nation to go into the, into the land of Canaan and they're saying, no, it's a mistake. What could be greater heresy than that? How do Anoshim Roshib B'nai Yisrael behave in this way? How do they descend to this kind of depth? And what does it say, Kapirish Rashi, Al Oimram ki kumi menu, when they said about the land and about the people that it is stronger and mightier than us and that we can ever be. How could such a thing happen to such great people? The Gam, Apirish Madi Isa Bazaar Kodosh, Noyatsu, Lahoni, Leibene Israel, Milikonis, Laoret, Machmashe Choshvu. Why is it, says the Zohar, that the Meraglim tried to sway the Jewish nation, sway their opinion with regard to entering the land because they were concerned They felt that somehow if the Jewish nation entered into the land of Canaan, they, the Meraglim, these Anoshim, Rashi Bene Yisrael would lose their status and would no longer be considered the greatest people within the nation of Israel. As a result of this negius, this personal bias, they were willing to say the most dreadful things about Eretz Yisrael so that the nation wouldn't abandon them as their leaders and would keep them as their leaders and they were certain that if they got to, the, to Eretz Yisrael they would lose their leadership status. In their place, others would be chosen. This in particular needs to be explained. If they were such great people and they were Rashi B'nei Yisrael, why would they imagine this? Why would they even contemplate such an outcome? We just need to understand it simply, in the simplest possible terms. I mean, come on, think about it. Why would they imagine, if they indeed were such great people, that they would be replaced by others if the Jewish nation made it into the Holy Land? If it was the case that when they were in the wilderness, better people than them couldn't be found, to be the leaders of the Jewish nation. Why would it be when they enter into the Holy Land that suddenly they would find other leaders? Where would they find them from? They're the leaders. They're great at it. Why would they find other people? What are you even talking about? What is this suggestion in their minds to the extent that they were willing to trash Eretz Canaan as a possible destination for the Jewish people, which... And it was the destiny, not just the destination, it was the destiny of the Jewish people. How did the Meraglim get it so wrong? And with this personal concern of theirs, why would they even think that? It sounds like a nonsensical, paranoid cheshben that they had. Says the Nesiva Sholem, I think that he describes the underlying puzzle here very well, but he continues as follows. Vine Isa... 
The grandfather from Slonim, the Slonim Rebbe, the Be'er Avraham, says as follows. He wants to explain why the Meraglim were actually dispatched in the first place. What does he say? The Jewish nation who desired to send the Meraglim, we can know for sure, we know it, this is not, this is Doir Deya. We're not talking about an ordinary bunch of people in ordinary times. This is extraordinary times and these are extraordinary people. Certainly among them were some of the greatest tzaddikim ever to grace the Jewish nation. So what was their intent to send the Meraglim? Fascinating idea. Their intention was not simply to scout out the land because they wanted to know its topography and geography and military establishment. What they wanted to know is what they needed to be concerned about in terms of their own personal growth when they get there. What were the challenges, the spiritual challenges of Eretz Kanaan? For them, the tzaddikim of Doir Dea, of this, the most knowledgeable generation of the Jewish people at all times. What should they be concerned about? What do they need to improve in themselves? Even though they believed, of course they did, they were tzaddikim. They believed in the sanctity of the land. They knew that within that land lived seven dreadful nations. What are they? They are the seven husks. This is a Kabbalistic term that contaminate, spiritually contaminate the land. What they've done is, in a spiritual sense, they have contaminated the land to the extent that it's completely in the grip of the worst possible human frailties and uh, um, and evil desires and designs. Of course it is, because these are evil nations. And, the, uh, and we're not just talking about um, physical, material pollution, we're talking about spiritual pollution. These seven nations were the worst pollutants possible in spiritual terms, and the tzaddikim of Doir of the Doir Hamidbar, were concerned about the pollution, the spiritual pollution in Eretz Canaan, for which reason they sent the Meraglim ahead of them. They wanted to know specifically what the requirements would be in order to overcome these husks that exist, these spiritual impediments that exist in the land of Canaan. What do they have to work on? Uh, and to, and to um, really put effort into. Right now, even before they get to the Holy Land. They wanted to prepare themselves. They wanted to be fully ready in anticipation of this great moment. And as I described it earlier, everybody knew where they were going, but they knew as well, especially the tzaddikim that great challenges faced them and therefore they wanted to prepare themselves and they wanted to know exactly how to prepare themselves in order 
to make sure that when they got there, things wouldn't go horribly wrong. The Kosav. And he writes, That we also found the same thing with Avram Avinu. It says about him, If you remember, in Parshas Lech Lecha, they got to the land of Canaan, he got there, there was a famine, he needed to go to Mitzrayim. And the Posuk says, He was about to come close to Egypt. The Isa Bazar Kodosh and the Zohar, the Kabbalistic work, says as follows: Shekoidem bi Osel Mitzrayim hischil laavoid leistrachik ma'amidos arosh Mitzrayim. That even before he got to Egypt, he began to prepare himself, to cleanse himself, to fortify himself against all the midos rois, the terrible attributes of the land of Egypt and of the Egyptian nation. The Chaimotzinu be Yaakov Avinu. We find similar. With Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, the Kosav, it says in the Pasuk, He came out of Be'er Sheva and he went to Choron Pirish. And one of the explanations for this curious statement is that that when he went out to go to Choron, he already began to prepare himself mentally and spiritually for everything that he knew could harm him spiritually when he got to Choron. So we see that, there, that both Avram Avinu and Yaakov Avinu, there's history here of people being concerned about their spiritual well-being, their welfare as God-fearing and faithful, um, uh, faithful, being faithful to God. And in terms of the Jews having just received the Torah at Mount Sinai, their concern was similar to that of Avraham Avinu and Yaakov Avinu. One when, when he was about to go to Egypt, which was a den of iniquity. And one when he was about to go to Choron, which was equally a den of iniquity. And therefore they needed to prepare themselves in anticipation. The sorry, so says, continues the Nesivus Sholem. And this indeed was the intent of those who considered kosher, a pure, in, among the Jewish nation, when they sent the Meraglim, similar to Avram and Yaakov, they wanted to make sure that they were fully ready when they got to the land. However, send these Meraglim send people who are just like you, who go in your way. What does that mean? In your direction, in your, in your fashion. Do you know what Moshe Rabbeinu excelled in? And we could say all types of wonderful things about Moshe Rabbeinu. We could say that he was a great leader. We could say he was a great advocate. We could say he was a great scholar. It was Moshe Rabbeinu after all. He was our first rabbi. We could say he's a very holy man, Ish Kodosh. What does the Torah call him? The most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth. His ultimate attribute is one of Hachna'ah, humility. That's who Moshe Rabbeinu was, says the says the Nesiva Shalom. Do you know what it means when it says Shlach Lecha Send them Ledadcha according to your Das. 
Send those people who go according to your way of behaving in life. And what does that mean? As it says, Moshe was a great, great Onov, the most humble man we call Adam from all men, who are on the face of the earth. In other words, if you want to send Meraglim, if you want to send people to scout out Eretz Canaan, make sure that they are humble, that they are those who emulate your greatest attribute, Ledat Cha. Ki be'emes ein roi le'odam ashe yidbe benafshoi, eze mido ro'o liskabe olov, oid koidim she yovoi loyan isoyim be'mido zu. Actually, it's not a proper way for somebody to anticipate how he might react in a given situation if that thing has never happened to before. An incredible psychological insight. And it's reflected in Rambam Hilchus Tshuva. I'm not going to go into that particular detail. The idea that you can know how you're going to behave in a particular situation when you've never been in that situation before is the height of arrogance. How can you possibly prepare yourself and train yourself to be ready for a situation that you've never experienced and nobody around you has ever experienced? What are you going to do? You've got no idea. You can't imagine what it's like, for example, if you are somebody who's learning Chinese, to converse in Chinese until you've actually been to China. It's only once you've engaged in the vernacular use of a language that you can know how you're going to have an exchange of conversation in that language. Otherwise, it's just text in a textbook, or maybe a teacher in the classroom is speaking to you in hackneyed phrases. But ultimately, you need the experience. And to imagine that you are fully prepared to engage in a conversation in a foreign language that you've learnt or know something about, simply because somebody's told you how they speak the language who's visited there, is the height of arrogance. It means that you think that you know more than you do. That's not Hachna'ah. That's not Anova. That's not Moshe Rabbeinu. That's not Meraglim Hu Ashlach Lecha Midadcha. That's what the Nesibah Shalom is saying. Avokoidem Lachain ain't lo yesasiyata dishmaya. Sorry. Ki ba'esa nisoyin yesh la'odam siyata dishmaya lezgaber. It's only when you are in the midst of a particular challenge that you have siyata dishmaya that God, as it were, accompanies you and helps you to deal with that challenge. That's when it happens. However, before then you don't have that level of siyata dishmaya because it hasn't happened yet. And it's extremely difficult to think about it and work on it and prepare for it. In fact, you're wasting your time. Perhaps you could be aware of it, but it's a waste of time to try and work on yourself in those circumstances. So how can you do it? How would it even be possible to do it if you are somebody who exhibits if you are a humble person, you give yourself over to a situation knowing 
that there's things that you can't control. The only thing you can do is to practice hachna'ah. To teach yourself this ability to submit. And then whatever situation arises, you'll be able to submit to it. It doesn't matter what it is. It becomes your characteristic to submit. In fact, you don't even need to know what that situation might be. It's impossible to anticipate every possible scenario. But the one thing that you can do is teach yourself achnod. Then it doesn't matter what scenario you encounter. You'll be able to withstand the challenge. And it is indeed that which was the koach, the strength of character of the patriarchs, the forefathers. And Yaakov, in both those given situations, had an incredible capacity for humility and submission. And this is what it means when God said, to Moshe Rabbeinu, send Ladatcha, send the Meraglim Ladatcha, Kirak Anoshim Midas Only those who are like you, who are able to submit to any given situation. They are the ones who can withstand and they can work on themselves even prior to whatever happens. On this Midah of Achna, so that they'll be able to withstand whatever is thrown their way. But if you try and prepare, what will happen if somebody offers you some non-kosher food? I've got no idea. Maybe I'm going to be hungry. Maybe the person's going to be very convincing, a good salesman. I've got no idea. You can't prepare yourself for that because you've got no idea how you'll feel in that given situation. In that case, trying to prepare yourself or feeling that the only way you can ever go to that place is to prepare yourself is an exercise in futility. That was the mistake of the Meraglim. It's wrong to even try and withstand the potential of this great challenge before the challenge has actually occurred. And we can add a further layer of explanation. It's interesting, says the Nasiva Shalom, that it's specifically with regard to Eretz Canaan, Eretz Yisrael, the promised land, that we use this expression of Shlach In fact, it is only people who appreciate this Midah of Hachnoah that are able to fully get the essence of the Holy Land. We see many instances across Jewish texts which demonstrate that the essence of the Holy Land is the idea that you have to be machnia. And he quotes one of his ancestors, The Pasuk says, The land is extremely good. When you use the word, 
That's not a good thing. So what is a shofel ruach? If you want to know what it means to be a shofel ruach, somebody who completely submits himself at the at the to the nth degree. That's what ma'oid ma'oid means. The ultimate form. That's what it means. ma'oid ma'oid. Do you know? Do you want to understand the goodness of the land? You have to be a ma'oid ma'oid. ma'oid ma'oid have a shofel ruach. You need to be a shofel ruach to appreciate the kedushas ha'aretz. Shelikdushas ha'aretz zaycherak misho ma'oid ma'oid shofel ruach. Uvenitzutze oiros lachida. He says a fascinating thing, the Chidah. The Chidah, the great rabbi from Eretz Yisrael who settled in Livorno and became one of the greatest rabbis of the late 18th century, died in the first years of the 1800s. He says as follows a fascinating idea. What's the name of Eretz Yisrael before it became Eretz Yisrael? Eretz Kanaan. He says, do you know why? Do you know why it's called Eretz Kanaan? Kedna'an Loshoin Hachno'ah. The word Kanaan, the name of the country, is actually synonymous with, its, with the attribute that you need in order to appreciate it fully. Shehaaretz Hirak Lenichno'im. The land is only available to those who are Machnia themselves. Lemisha Nichna Ke'ain. The Ephes, Lifnei Hashem Yisborach, somebody who is Machnia, who submits himself as if he is nothing and worthless in front of God. Recognize your true value in the face of God. Then you will understand the depth and breadth of Eretz Kanaan, Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land. Umma'amorim elu moirim lonu, shamidosh el Eretz Yisrael ushvelus. And these Mamorim and others demonstrate to us that the greatest attribute of the Holy Land is absolutely this concept of Hachna'a. What does that mean? Only those who manage the ultimate level of Hachna'a, they are the ones who will inherit the promised land and understand its sanctity and sacredness. Who will truly appreciate how great the land is. Somebody who is not like that will not appreciate its holiness. And as it says in Tehillim, It says, Actually, the words of Tehillim in Perik Lamad Zayin, those who are humble will inherit the land. That inheriting the land is contingent and dependent on this particular attribute. Um, we are nothing because the nation who live in the land are very strong. Amolek Yoshe Baaretz HaNegev, Baaretz HaNegev, Amolek, the great warrior nation Amolek lives in the Negev. Kud Isa Besvarim HaKadoshim, the Amolek, the Gematria, Rom, Shehu Inyon Geus. Do you know what Amolek is? Amolek is the same Gematria if you add up the letters to the word Rom. Rom is uh, synonymous with this concept of arrogance, 
of pomposity. And they said, and we also saw the children of the great giant. Once again, this concept of arrogance, of height, of human power, somehow they are completely consumed with this idea and, and they themselves couldn't be machnia to the reality of God and Kedusha in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, the land of Hachnoa. The Hainu Lefisha Midosh El Eretz Yisrael Hi Achnoa Shvelus Leumazeh Hayisasham His Gabrus Chazokas Oklipas Geus. The very reason for these Bnei Anak, very reason for Amolek being in that place is that they were a counterweight to the essence of Eretz Yisrael, which is Achnoa. It always happens that if you have an influence in one direction, then the reaction to that, the physical, material world's reaction to that, is to take it completely in the other direction. The reason I, why Amalek are attracted to the land of Canaan is because they are the very opposite of Achna. The reason why they are Bnei Anok in Eretz Canaan is because they represent the very antithesis of Achna. And that was the role of the Jewish nation. We had to be people who were Ma'oid Ma'oid Shofel Ruach in order to appreciate the land of Israel and to conquer the seven nations, to take possession of the promised land, and to realize the legacy and the heritage of our patriarchs. And it was indeed in this very middah that the Meraglim failed. As the Torah says about them, Kulam Anoshim Roshei Bnei Yisrael Heimah. Do you know what they were? They were Anoshim. But they were Rashi Bnei Yisrael. Pirish Kulam Anoshim Shem Tzadikim Gedolim. They were all Anoshim, the greatest of people. Aval, however, Rashi Bnei Yisrael is not a compliment. Rashi Bnei Yisrael, hey Moshe, Eishlam, Hisnasus. They know that they are Tzadikim. And they know that they are, as it were, better than everybody else. And they lord it over others. Hisnasus, Upegumim, Heim, Bamidas, Achnao, Shvelus. They don't have this middah, this attribute of submission, of understanding their place in the world. It doesn't matter if you're a great tzaddik or a great scholar or if you've got greater spiritual achievements. Why should you be in any, any more than somebody else who hasn't quite achieved your level of tzitkus? The bigger you are as a tzaddik, the more you should realize that you are a shofel ruach or should be a shofel ruach and you should appreciate the message of ma'oid, ma'oid. And that's why the Torah writes it, this concept of Rashi Bani Yisrael Hemar, to teach you that it was exactly this. Right at the beginning of the story, we could already see where it was all going to go wrong because they were Rashi Bani Yisrael. They felt themselves to be more important and better than everybody else. They were. Um, they were completely consumed by this concept of his nasus. Now we can understand why it was that the Meraglim were concerned that when they got to Eretz Yisrael that we, they would be removed from their positions and would be replaced by others. Why were they so concerned? The Kosher Canal. Right at the 
We don't understand how that's even possible. Surely, if they were great enough to be leaders in the wilderness, why wouldn't they have been continued to be leaders when they got to the promised land? Why would others have been chosen in their place? Elah. However, when they realized that when they get to Eretz Yisrael, it's Eretz Canaan, it's the land of Hachnoah, we need to demonstrate this new middah of submission that we're not used to. And they knew that they weren't up to that standard. They certainly knew that they had not reached that level, etc. They realized that once they got there, they would be dispatched from their positions and that they would be replaced by others who were able to emulate and to practice this attribute of Hachnoa. And it was only Yehoshua bin Nun and Kolei bin Yufune who did not fall into the trap of believing and going along with the uh, reports and the negativity of the Miraglim, the others. You know why? Do you know why Yehoshua and Kolei were saved? Because they were like Avraham. They were like Yaakov. They were like Moshe. They were... They were nichnoim. They were able to withstand this concept of Roshe B'nei Yisrael. They were ma'od ma'od shofel ruach. That's exactly what they were. So of course they could withstand this challenge. As the Targum Yonason says, Actually, the whole reason why Yeshua's name was changed was because he was such a great honor, he was such a humble man. And once again with Kolev, there is the Pasuk that demonstrates that he too had this attribute of humility and of submission before God, which is why God singled him out, Avdi Kolev, the Isa Bedivrei Shmuel. And the Divrei Shmuel says, Shayashofel Be'enov Bechinas Ekev. And he was somebody who was a Shofel, a Shofel Ruach, in the same way as an Ekev, which is the ankle of the foot, the heel of the foot. That is the bottom part of the body. That's how Kole felt about himself. That's why he was referred to as God's servant by God. And it was through this incredible attribute of Anova and Hachnoa that he and Yehoshua were able to enter into Eretz Yisrael and to get it. That was the key here. Whereas the Jewish nation were not able to get it. In order to be um, to get to receive to merit possession of the promised land, the Jewish nation needed to achieve this particular midah This was the great test of the Jewish nation in anticipation of them coming to the promised land, and they failed miserably. 
והניסויון הוכיח שעדיין אינו מוכנים לירושה סוארץ. This test that God gave them, it wasn't a punishment. They're not going to the promised land wasn't a punishment. It was because they couldn't possibly make it in the promised land. They were tested with the middle of Achna and they failed the test. That Adayan Eina Muchanim Liushas Aretz, they're not ready to inherit the land. Ki oid laisigu bechinas achna u shvelus, because they haven't yet reached that level of achna and shvelus that they need to reach in order to achieve that objective of living in Eretz Kanan. They're not nichnoim. Verak tapchem ashe amartem. Only their children. Yehema yavayu shama vahem yerashua. It's only their children, their descendants, who would be able to inherit it. They would reach that level. They would be trained in Hachna'a. They would be able to inherit and take possession of the Promised Land. That's the word, Lavois. They would see themselves in that light. And only in, in, uh, as a result of that ability would they be able to get to Eretz Yisrael, to inherit it, to take possession of it, to live in it. They could live in Eretz Canaan, be Nichnoim, and turn it into Eretz Yisrael. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe, Shlach Lecha we, the only shlach lecha can ever be, has to be ledatcha. People like you, Moshe Rabbeinu, anoshim shehem ledatcha. People just like you, hainu b'midah sachna shvelus. People who understand this midah of anova, of hachna, of shofel ruach ma'oid ma'oid. As it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the greatest and most humble man who ever lived from more than anybody else on the face of the planet. And because the Maraglim were unable to achieve this, they were, they were deficient in this particular Midah. That's why they failed in their, um, in their mission. And the entire Jewish nation suffered as a result of this. They failed that test. The Nasivas Shalom goes on, but we will leave it here for today. A fascinating insight, a psychological insight as to how we should relate to Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael, which is the center and the essence of Jewish life. Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, was originally Eretz Kanaan, a land where it's very hard to be machnia, but that is your challenge. Can you withdraw from your arrogance and treat the land of Israel and everything that happens there, with the necessary hachna'ah, this attribute of submission before God, because that's the only way that you will ever be able to live for an extended period and be in possession of Eretz HaKodesh, the promised land. We'll leave it here. Thank you.